my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and what's up dudes, it's your host Josh Baker. Welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I talk about six new-to-me horror movies followed by a random spooky seventh topic. I have a couple fun bad sequels and other ridiculous movies to chit-chat about today. There will be Roth Shock, French Fright, and Masked Maniacs in this splatter-filled episode. Put on your favorite killing mask and listen as I go over some films. Number 1, Knock Knock, 2015, directed by Eli Roth. A family man named Evan helps out two girls, Belle and Genesis, that show up and knock on his door. He is seduced by them. After the menage, the girls torment and attack him. They also end up causing the death of a guy named Lewis. The girls tell Evan they are going to kill him, but all they end up doing is destroying his life and house. Belle and Genesis are the killers. I had seen a trailer for this right after John Wick came out, and remember thinking to myself, why is Keanu Reeves doing this awful film? Against my initial better judgment, I put on Knock Knock anyway, and as soon as directed by Eli Roth popped up, I knew I had made a huge mistake. Honestly, I should have turned the movie off right there and started something else. I guess I thought watching this would make me a martyr or something. The short of it is, don't watch this. I might say something that makes you think, that sounds great, but do not waste your time. Seriously, the unintentionally hilarious moments in this are few and far between. I can't get the hour and 40 minutes of my life back, but have hopefully saved you from the same fate. Most of the movie is your usual Roth formula of shock over substance. I'm not a fan of Eli Roth. Well, I did really enjoy that Thanksgiving trailer he did for Grindhouse, and I haven't seen Cabin Fever yet, which sounds like the only movie from him that I might not hate. To set my opinion of him in stone once and for all, and because I'm a glutton for punishment, I will be going over Cabin Fever right after this. Back to Knock Knock. This is a remake of a 1977 film called Death Game. I haven't seen the original and don't have any plans to. In Knock Knock, the girls tell Evan they are 15 after they have sex, which is never believable and is the main reason why Evan complies with their requests instead of going to the police. They are both obviously in their late 20s. Regarding the only death in the film, a man named Lewis, who is Evan's wife's assistant and close friend of the family, comes over to pick up some of Evan's wife's art to take to a gallery. He instantly sees through the girl's facade and is going to call the police. The girls take his inhaler, which leads to him having an asthma attack and slipping on a broken piece of a sculpture. His head hits concrete and he dies. 
This death prompts the girls to turn him into a paper mache man and load him into the back of a van while they talk about a guy who gets rid of bodies for them. Then at the end of the movie, they don't kill Evan because they don't kill anyone. Okay, you have a guy that gets rid of bodies, but you don't kill anyone. Also, your actions led to the death of someone. The only enjoyable thing in this movie is national treasure Keanu Reeves. I honestly have no idea why he did this movie. I tried to find a reason why he would make this after the success of John Wick, and the answer seems to be that they were filmed around the same time. Keanu Reeves does one of the best Nicolas Cage impressions I have ever seen in Knock Knock. I am a huge Keanu fan. His delivery has never been one of his strengths. This movie has him delivering some of the most ridiculous lines I've ever heard. There is a whole monologue about free pizza that made me explode with laughter. Google free pizza Keanu, watch his speech. It is hilarious and the only part of Knock Knock worth watching. The acting is bad, the plot is bad, the gore is non-existent, the movie as a whole is bad. Don't watch this movie, just watch the free pizza monologue. During the sex scene where Keanu cheats with the girls, the music that is playing sounds like it was taken from an Adams Family movie. Fun fact, Lorenzo Izzo, who plays Genesis, is Eli Roth's wife. Anna de Armas, who plays Belle, does a much better job acting in Blade Runner 2049, but to be fair, she plays Joy, the AIGF. A pro tip for expiring directors. If you are going to make a movie where a husband cheats on his wife and gets horribly tormented for it, cast someone other than America's sweetheart Keanu Reeves. I don't want to see Keanu Reeves being tormented unless it leads to a rampage to avenge his dog's death. Here's your last chance, Eli. Number 2, Cabin Fever, 2002, directed by Eli Roth. A group of college kids, Jeff, Marcy, Paul, Karen, and Bert, go to a cabin to relax. Bert has a run-in with a guy who has some strange disease. Bert scares the guy off initially, but the infected guy shows up at the cabin. The kids try to scare him off, and in the process their car is destroyed, and Paul lights the guy on fire. The group starts to get infected with the disease since the guy's corpse ended up infecting the water supply. When townies are asked for help by Bert, they end up trying to kill all the kids to stop the spread of the disease. Paul bests them and ends up at a hospital where the police decide to kill him and contain the outbreak. The film ends with all the students dead and two young kids selling infected lemonade to the police and townies. A disgruntled ex-bowling alley employee, Paul, the police, a guitar-playing hippie, and a rabid dog named Dr. Mambo are the killers. No one actually succumbs to the flesh-eating disease in the movie. The employee comes from a story Paul tells about a guy that murders a bunch of people in a bowling alley. Hearing this story made me realize I actually saw at least part of this movie years ago. If I saw the whole thing, I didn't remember a ton of specifics. Now that I've seen all of Ross's horror films besides The Green Inferno, I can say I'm not the biggest fan of his. Fortunately for me, Cabin Fever is a fun time. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It has Ryder Strong from Boy Meets World as the main college kid Paul. Eli Roth plays a stoner named Justin in the movie. 
I was sure that he also played the bowling alley manager that's always smiling, but it turns out that that was actually his brother Adam. The bowling alley story was based on true events that happened at Sammy White's Brighton Bowl in Boston, Massachusetts. Four employees were killed during a robbery. Maybe it was a different time, but these days I don't think you'd be walking away with much after robbing a bowling alley. Here's your episodely pet warnings. You see the corpse of a dog opened up. A dog named Dr. Mambo is also shot and killed off screen. Pup caveats are here to stay. The humor in this movie is mostly good. I don't know why Roth decided to stray away from comedy elements after this movie. The pancake scene alone is comedy gold and was only added after Roth saw the actor that plays the townie kid practicing taekwondo. Roth's got an eye for giggle content. Sean, I mean Paul, isn't the most likable character, but is put forward as the main protagonist. He creepily feels up Karen while she sleeps. Granted, this is how it's revealed that she's sick, but this could have easily been shown in another more consenting way. For some reason, it seems like Paul also really wanted to get infected. He sees the corpse of the guy he set on fire floating in the water. For no reason, he climbs onto a rickety old ladder and flips the body over. Of course, the ladder breaks and he gets wet and wild with the corpse. Later on, he sees that Karen has been partially eaten by a dog, but is still alive. He decides to mercy kill her by bashing her head in with a shovel, multiple times, getting her blood all over him. I mean, he was probably infected before these lapses in judgment, but he wasn't showing any symptoms. One thing in the movie doesn't make sense. Cops arrive at the cabin to deal with the infected, they kill Jeff who pops back up at the end, and burn all the bodies. Okay, makes sense. The thing is, they kill Paul, and for some reason, instead of burning his body with the others, they dump it in a stream where two kids end up gathering some water, the final ingredient for their accidentally infected lemonade. No idea why they didn't burn Paul's body with the others. The most random kill in the movie comes from a wayward guitar swing. A guitar-wielding hippie's intended target, Paul, ducks the swing, which puts the hippie's harmonica-playing buddy in the line of fire. After being struck El Cabong style, the harmonica is forced down the player's throat, killing him. Points for creativity there. It's also done practically. All the gore is. And most of it looks pretty good, barring some less than stellar looking rashes. The acting isn't incredible, but enjoyable. If you are going to watch an Eli Roth film, definitely check out Cabin Fever. Number 3, The Strangers, Pray at Night, 2018, directed by Johannes Roberts. A girl named Kinsey is being a rascal, so her parents decide to take her and her brother Luke to a trailer park for some family time on the way to dropping off Kinsey at boarding school. The two kids end up stumbling upon the corpses of their great aunt and uncle who ran the park. Pandemonium ensues. There are three masked killers in the trailer park. The mom gets stabbed to death by one of them. The dad crashes his van and becomes a sitting duck who ends up 
also getting stabbed. Luke has a run-in with the killers. He takes out one of them, then gets seriously injured by another. Kinsey takes out another killer with a shotgun, and then after some ridiculous events, finishes off the last killer with a baseball bat. The film ends with Kinsey and Luke in a hospital where Kinsey gets spooked by a knock on the door. The three masked psychopaths are the killers. I saw the original Strangers in theaters 10 years ago and remember it being pretty good. So after seeing the trailer for this unnecessary sequel that looked to turn a slow burn home invasion movie into an action slasher, I was sold because who doesn't love an awful horror sequel? The original director and writer Brian Bertino had no involvement in the sequel besides writing the original screenplay. Let's start off with a basic question. Is the movie good? No, it's not a good movie. That doesn't mean that it's not a barrel of fun. Christina Hendricks is the biggest name in this, and she is awful. She plays the mom, and her and the dad were both pretty bad. The kids is acting is better, and they are alive a lot longer than the parents anyway. Funnily enough, the best kill is done by Luke. A killer referred to as Pinup Girl runs up behind him, giving him time to react with a great golf swing to her face, which knocks her down. He then takes her knife and stabs her to death brutally. I completely thought that Kinsey was going to end up being the one wearing the mask. I mean, it was so stupid for Pinup Girl to just run up on Luke like that, so I thought the killers caught Kinsey, duct taped her mouth, put on the Pinup Girl mask, and let her run to Luke. Would that have been a more memorable scene? Yeah. I also feel it would have been a nice homage to the first one, where one of the characters accidentally kills his friend. I rewatched the original and will be covering it for the seventh topic later on in the episode. Back to The Strangers 2, Casual Acquaintances. There are some really dumb scenes. Kinsey is being stalked by the dude who's driving a truck. She goes to hide in one of those large tubes that are sometimes at construction sites. The truck finds her and turns on its headlights, which prompts her to scream something, which is answered by Pinup Girl, who pops out of the darkness. She was in the tube all along. Really, Pinup Girl? Were you just randomly hanging out in the tube, hoping that one of the people you were trying to kill would crawl inside to hide? I picture Pinup Girl sitting around, bored out of her mind, in a bunch of dark places, just hoping that someone will come along. I wonder how many places she waited until she got to do her cheap jump scare. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been too hard for her to go to a place that the kids were likely to hide. Since the kids randomly yell the entire time they are running anywhere, Pinup Girl probably heard Kinsey coming since she was yelling for her brother when she should have been quiet. Then, Pinup Girl crawled into the tube to wait for her. If you are ever being stalked by a bunch of killers in the middle of nowhere, the last thing you should do is bring a ton of attention to yourself. Calling out to other people is going to get you all killed. The dad gets a gun and both him and Luke get into a van and start looking for Kinsey. One of the killers throws something at the van's windshield which causes the dad to completely spaz out and crash the van into a trailer. And wouldn't you know it, 
he gets impaled through the stomach by one of those trailer's wooden beams. The object thrown at the van didn't even pierce the window, my dude. Have some composure, please. Luke also randomly loses the gun after being too scared to use it. These instances were pretty dumb, but the stupidest part of the movie is when Kinsey blows up the truck that the masked man is in. She isn't affected at all by the close explosion, which is ridiculous, but that's not all. Masked Man is somehow alive and able to drive the truck, which is now covered in flames. He gets out of the truck and dies before being able to kill Kinsey, but wait, he's still alive. He pops up again because tropes, which gives us the baseball bat smack from Kinsey. The whole explosion sequence should have been removed. The bag mask being burnt into his face is cool and all, but just have Kinsey light him on fire somehow instead of having these completely unbelievable explosion events. The gore in this movie is pretty good and practical. The corpse of the uncle is all messed up and unsettling. The burlap sack burned into the killer's face is neat. Luke gets stabbed in a pool and we watch him bleed for far too long, but the blood in the water looked cool. The blood splatter when Luke kills Pinup Girl is also well done. This movie drags out multiple scenes in order to reach feature length and leans heavily on 80s nostalgia. I'm a sucker for 80s music and I'm hoping that these recent trends of playing it in everything doesn't ruin it for me. If you are looking for a fun garbage slasher, give this a watch. Last couple things, at least Strangers 2 tries to write in a reason for no one having a cell phone. It's dumb, but the dad asks that everyone put their phone on the table for family time, then everyone conveniently decides to leave their phones in the trailer when going outside, which gives the killers the opportunity to smash them all. Also, it's not based on a true story, even though they keep saying it is. Number 4, Haute Tension, aka High Tension, aka Switchblade Romance, 2003, directed by Alexandre Agir. Two girls, Marie and Alex, go to Alex's family home for a study-filled weekend. Once there, a man who happens to be a murderous maniac shows up and starts, you guessed it, murdering everyone. The man kills Alex's dad, mom, and little brother. He then kidnaps Alex. Marie sneaks into the back of the man's truck where Alex is tied up before he takes off. He stops to get gas which gives Marie a window to try and get help. She tells a gas station clerk to call the police but the maniac ends up killing the clerk and driving off with Alex. Marie pursues the maniac in the clerk's car. After crashing the car and ending up at a weird farm Marie eventually takes the killer down and frees Alex. But wait, Marie was the murderous maniac all along. What? No, it totally makes sense. No, it doesn't. I mean, if you completely forget a ton of the events that happened in the movie, maybe she could be the killer, but those parts are still in the movie. I mean, yeah, but she's the killer. You can't just say she's the killer. It doesn't make any sense. Alex drove Marie to the house and she met Alex's family. The maniac with the truck is shown lurking outside the house before Marie even gets there. We see him give himself a beige with a girl's decapitated head, remember?
That was misdirection. Fake news. Are you kidding me? Marie's the killer. No, that doesn't... Fine, whatever. Marie is the killer. Sure, okay. Marie's the killer, everyone. Not the murderous maniac dude that the gas station clerk knew by name. There wasn't a car chase between Marie and that guy. Nope, it was Marie all along. That sick monster. I can't believe she's done this. Come to think of it, she does flick the bean while listening to reggae music, which is something only a psychopath would do. High Tension has the dumbest twists I've ever seen, mostly because the twist makes absolutely no sense. The twist is stupid. Now that I've complained about the terrible twist, let's talk about the rest of the movie, which is actually a lot of fun. For some reason, I've been avoiding this movie for years. I thought it was going to be a torture porn flick where a guy kidnaps a girl and chases her around his compound the whole time. This isn't a torture porn film. It's a ridiculous slasher. You know that I love me, a ridiculous slasher. The kills in this movie are absurd, unrealistic, and fantastic. When the first kill is the dad getting his head shoved between two staircase railings, then forcibly knocked off after having a bookcase shoved right into his head, you know you're in for a wild ride. The gore in high tension reminds me of Japanese gore movies like Itchy the Killer and The Machine Girl, but surprisingly enough, it came out before most of the famous Japanese gore movies. Itchy the Killer does predate High Tension, but the two came out just two years apart. So it's possible that there is a weird French gore scene that I haven't tapped into yet. This movie was brought to my attention by Brian from the Sticker Fridge crew. He gave me a bunch of French recommendations from a horror fanatic friend of his, which I definitely have to dive into soon now. The over-the-top kills are definitely where high tension shines. All of the kills in this movie are ridiculous. Only one of the human kills is off-screen, which makes sense since the one kill not shown is the kid brother's death and child murder is a touchy subject. Another pup caveat. A dog is killed in this movie. It's not really graphic though. The dog is just shown in frame with a little bit of red dye on his tummy. I made sure to find the French version of this movie. There is an English dub that is much easier to find but the dub is terrible and a lot of the gory goodness is cut from the English version. If you want to see a bunch of crazy practical kills and can ignore how incredibly impossible the twist is, I recommend checking High Tension out. Make sure to watch the French version. I was going to watch a movie called Intensity for the Thanksgiving episode, but couldn't get into the mood to watch a 186-minute two-part made-for-TV movie at the time. It just so happens that it's an adaptation of a book by Dean Kuntz called Intensity that's plot seems to have been stolen for high tension. It appears that the whole beginning setup and basic events that happen in the house were stolen from Intensity. Alexandre Agir even acknowledged that he had read the novel and was aware of the similarities. Kuntz didn't sue for plagiarism, because he found the film so purel, so disgusting, and so intellectually bankrupt that he didn't want the association with it that would inevitably come 
if he pursued any action against the filmmaker. Number 5, The Descent Part 2, 2009, directed by John Harris. Sarah, the sole survivor from the American version of The Descent, is dragged back into the caverns by an incompetent sheriff, his deputy, and a spelunking crew. Once in the caves, the sheriff causes a cave-in, which gets everyone trapped again. The monsters take no time and start killing everyone. Juno, the cheater that was left for dead, is still alive. Everyone but the deputy is killed in the caverns. The deputy makes it out, only to be knocked out by a random old guy who drove Sarah to the hospital in the beginning of the movie. The old guy hits the deputy with a shovel, then feeds her to one of the monsters. The cave monsters and random old guy are the killers. The random old guy's name is Ed. Does him knocking out the deputy at the end make any sense? Nope. I guess we need a dumb twist though. At least this twist is somewhat plausible, unlike High Tensions. If Ed was feeding people to the monsters, why did he take Sarah to the hospital? Why didn't he feed her to the monsters? Ah, who cares? Something I didn't mention in the summary is the fact that Sarah forgot what happened in the caves. She quickly remembers everything once she's trapped in them again, though. If this movie was trying to be a parody of the original, it succeeds. The movie is hilarious. It basically takes all the tense, scary scenes from the first movie and makes them funny. For example, in the first movie, there is a part where one of the girls is trying to quickly get across a chasm to get away from monsters. Unfortunately, she's not quick enough and a monster gets her. In part two, we have the same thing happen, except this time, the girl that is trying to get across the same chasm has to use the body of the first girl that is still hanging there to swing across. She jumps, grabs onto the body, and starts swinging. Doing this causes blood from the body to start pouring all over her face in comedic fashion. The guy she is with sees this and makes a disgusted face. I'm honestly not selling how funny this scene is. Picture it as absurdly as you can because it's ridiculous. It had me laughing out loud. The whole plot is dumb. Sarah can't remember what happened, so she is dragged back into the caverns by a really stupid sheriff to try and jog her memory? Seriously, why is this guy in charge at all? He's a character with no redeeming qualities. There's no way that a hospital would have released Sarah to his care. The sheriff even thinks she might have killed everyone. Okay, so you might be taking a murderer back into the caves where she murdered everyone, or there might be some awful things in the caves that might require a better team to go down and check out. Seriously, this rescue team is awful. Who rescues the rescuers? The gore in this is still done practically, but everything looks incredibly fake and bad, which heightens the comedy. The blood is now bright red and hilariously fake looking. There is a scene where a rat crawls out of the mouth of one of the original girl's corpses, which looks so terrible that I wasn't even disgusted. Come to think of it, after seeing that girl's crudely torn apart body, why did this unequipped party even continue on? No one even brings up the idea of leaving at that point. There are multiple throat bites that all look the same. The sheriff gets his arm cut off by multiple stamps from a climbing pick. But the scene that skeeved me out the most 
is a quick shot of a fingernail being ripped off since everything else looks absurd. I do appreciate the practical effects though and enjoyed them quite a bit. They just don't look nearly as realistic as the first films. In my opinion, practical gore is great even when it's terrible since unrealistic gore can be hilarious. There is a scene early on in the movie where Sarah starts washing her face and drinking water that is coming from the ceiling. I thought it would be funny if that water came from monsters peeing above her. Obviously this kind of joke would be way too dumb to have in a horror movie that's not a full-blown comedy. But wait, later on in the movie, Sarah and the deputy end up in a pool of water only to find out that they are actually in the monster's toilet. How do we know it's the toilet? A monster is shown dropping by and literally pooping into the water. Okay, part two. Okay. I'm on to you. I'm starting to think you are adding all these hilarious scenes on purpose. Blink twice if you are actually a horror comedy and were told to market yourself as a legit horror film. Because honestly, The Descent Part 2 is one of the funniest horror movies I have ever seen. There are so many scenes that the people making the movie must have known would be hilarious. The random new girl that is part of the rescue group gets stuck in a small pocket after a cave-in. She sticks her hand out of the pocket and gets monster drool on her hand. It's childish to say, but it totally looks like semen. After getting the monster see I mean drool on her hand, she yells out to two dudes in the group because she thinks the substance came from them. Why would one of the dudes ejac- I mean drool on her? Why would she even think it's one of them? She wouldn't. It's just a hilarious scene that would only make sense in a horror comedy. Like the original, this movie has jump scares, but every single one fails. It's like the timing is off or something. They are heavily telegraphed, which doesn't help. Also, in the first movie, they at least tried to have believable light sources throughout most of the film. Darkness was one of the scariest parts of the original. They needed to conserve their light, yada yada. In part two, they just stopped caring about the light and decide that everyone can see in the caves now. I could honestly go on and on about this movie. It is one of the best horror comedies I've ever seen. I realize it wasn't supposed to be, but some of the funniest movies weren't supposed to be comedies. I highly recommend watching The Descent Part 2 on the condition that you have already seen the first movie and have had some time to digest it. I wish the movie didn't end with the deputy being fed to the monsters though. She should have escaped, forgotten what happened in the caves, only to get dragged back into them two days later to rescue the rescuers for The Descent Part 3. Number 6, As Above, So Below, 2014, directed by John Eric Dowdle. A girl named Scarlet drags a bunch of people into the catacombs of Paris on a treasure hunt for the Philosopher's Stone. During the adventure, the gang ends up in hell. Many members of the group die in various ways. Scarlet and two other guys escape by confessing their sins and making a leap of faith. A guy referred to as the Mole, Fear, and past demons are the killers. The mole, who may or may not be possessed in some way, kills the group's goth. The cameraman gets spooked, causing him to fall to his death, and the tour guide, Papillon, is literally killed by a vision of his past. His death is kind of hilarious. He gets pulled into a burning car, then planted in the ground in a way where you can only see his legs sticking out. This movie is what you get when you stick National Treasure, 
The Mummy from 1999, The Goonies, and The Descent into a blender. The movie is awful and not scary at all, but it ends up being an enjoyable watch. None of what happens in the movie makes any sense, but that's okay. The adventurers end up in hell, so anything goes. The main character, Scarlet, is basically the main lady from The Mummy. Scarlet rushes in no matter what is going on. There is a part in the movie where stone monsters pop out of the wall and start attacking the party. Scarlet straight up stiff arms one to the ground on her way back to the room where she believes the real Philosopher's Stone is. She then comes back and trucks another one of the stone creatures as she makes her way back to the party. Every time she knocks one of the rock idiots down is hilarious. Scarlet doesn't care about possible consequences. Throughout the movie, she does illegal things in different countries and is incredibly loud about everything she's doing. The movie starts off with her sneaking into Syria, where she loudly goes over her plan to illegally enter the country on a crowded public bus. She then breaks into a cathedral to meet up with a friend. After that, she goes to a museum and channels her inner Nicolas Cage and vandalizes an ancient headstone to find a secret message on the back. Everything is very dramatic with her. Unlike The Descent, the gang in As Above, So Below mostly gets lost and stuck in the catacombs due to supernatural forces which make them go through an evil section of the catacombs. During the movie, Scarlet realizes that she was the Philosopher's Stone all along, I think. It's actually pretty confusing. This movie is honestly all over the place. It's like it never decided what it wanted to be, so it tries to be everything. The acting is bad, but the little bits of gore we see are actually pretty well done. The dead goth looks all sorts of messed up after the mole smashes her into the ground repeatedly. If you want to watch a cheeseball adventure movie that was actually filmed in the catacombs, has very light horror elements, makes a ton of references to Dante's Inferno, and has a decent amount of so bad they're funny moments, check out As Above, So Below. Number 7, The Strangers, 2008, directed by Brian Bertino. Kristen and James come back to James's childhood home after a wedding. James proposes to Kristen after the wedding, and it didn't go well. Probably because he proposed in the parking lot after a wedding. Three masked killers show up and begin terrorizing the couple. During this whole ordeal, James's friend Mike shows up at the house much earlier than expected to pick up James to help him avoid more awkwardness after the denied proposal. James kills Mike with a shotgun thinking he's one of the killers. James and Kristen eventually get caught, tied to chairs, and stabbed to death by the killers who then drive off. Kristen ends up still being alive once two Mormons stop by the house. James and the three masked psychopaths are the killers. In the last episode, I brought up OG strangers and talked about how I like the scenes where the killer is chilling in the background unnoticed. After doing a rewatch, I stand by that opinion, but only in regards to the first time it happens. The creepiest scene in the movie is the part where the baghead man slides into frame behind Liv Tyler, who plays Kristen, and observes her. I think that scene is great and works. It makes sense to show that he is spying on her there. 
My brother ranted about how the scenes where the victims don't notice the killer in the background are stupid, and even though I like the one baghead scene I just mentioned, there are a ton of other terrible scenes I didn't remember where the killers pop up behind our protagonists for a brief flash before disappearing, which are dumb, incredibly cheap, and serve no purpose. The first baghead scene sets an eerie, dreadful tone. It shows that the killers can get into the house undetected. The only thing scarier than a psychopath with a weapon outside your house is a sneaky psychopath with a weapon inside your house. Well, there are other things that are scarier than that technically, but you get my point. I must be the only one that didn't remember that Glenn Howerton, known for his role as Dennis in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, played Mike, the unfortunate shotgun victim, in this movie. I was recently talking to people about The Strangers, and the first thing most of them brought up was Dennis getting shot in the face. I guess I hadn't seen a ton of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia back in 2008. Like the sequel, this movie starts off by saying it is based on true events, which is a load of baloney. Writer-director Brian Bertino said he was inspired by the Manson family Tate murders and a series of break-ins that occurred in his neighborhood when he was little. If that counts, my movie The Bloody Reuben is based on true events as well. It was inspired by me working in a deli. That's some serious false advertising in my opinion, Mr. Bertino. The acting in The Strangers is pretty good. I've always been a fan of Liv Tyler. The gore is well done. Why doesn't anyone ever have their cell phone on them? If they have it, why is it dead? Also, why would Mike not call the police after having something thrown through his windshield and seeing his friend's car obviously destroyed maliciously in the driveway? Speaking of the car, how did no one hear the windows being smashed? All of the windows were shattered and no one heard anything? Oh yeah, plot convenience. The whole thing with them trying to use a random old radio in the backyard shed is absolutely stupid. Both James and Kristen would have survived if they just stayed in the corner with the shotgun that James has. They almost get this right when they hole up in a room. Just because you killed Mike doesn't mean you should abandon a decent plan. He's dead now. Even though I mostly went in on this movie, it's still a decent home invasion film. I recommend checking it out. One last thing, why does the one killer wear a bag on his head? The others have cute masks. Did they all take a trip to the Halloween store that just happened to only have two masks left? Maybe they couldn't afford a third one. Who knows? That'll do it for episode 15 of Blank is the Killer. I'm excited to cover some more French horror in the near future. As always, a big shout out to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps and iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes. It takes about two minutes tops, and you don't even have to sign into an account. I really want a rating on there, and I think you need at least five reviews. Positive reinforcement keeps me alive. I'll be back in action on April 8th. I just realized April 1st lands on a Sunday, and I'm kind of bummed out it doesn't land on right Sunday for Blank is the Killer. Maybe I'll do an April Fool's episode next year where I cover some absolute nonsense. 
If you need a horror movie recommendation for that silly day, check out Slaughter High, 1986, directed by George Dugdale, Mark Ezra, and Peter Litton. A bunch of kids are lured back to their high school by a kid they played a terrible joke on for a fake 10-year reunion that ends in bloodshed. It's a fun time. Anyways, look for the new episode in two weeks. Later, alligators.